Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to an Ipsos poll, 63% say that Andrew Scheer should resign as leader of the Conservative Party. Also, we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, this didn't take long. Uh, just uh, two days after the election uh, and the minority government, of course, that resulted, 63% of Canadians that were polled by Ipsos think Andrew Scheer should resign because he didn't win on Monday evening. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, it's a politics is a dirty business. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Barry K., political science professor at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. I really enjoyed your insight, by the way, on the global news coverage on Monday evening about the uh, the coverage and the election itself. Do, were there any surprises for you in, in this whole process, Barry? Oh, there's always surprises. Uh, clearly, the Liberals ran more strongly in uh, Ontario, especially the 905. They hardly lost anything uh, in the 905. Uh, and that's why they were. We, uh, most of the uh, people doing projections, like myself, were in the high 130s, low 140s. And in fact, they exceeded that by close to 20 seats, 157. Not enough for a majority. Uh, there were some individual seats I was certainly surprised by. Not not so much um, with regard to. I, I knew that uh, Goodale was in trouble in uh, in Saskatchewan. I'd heard that, and we were expecting a very strong uh, conservative performance in the western uh, the western province, especially Alberta and um, and Saskatchewan. Uh, a couple of seats I certainly was surprised by the uh, the Windsor Tecumseh uh, race because that was a seat that NDP had won by a big margin, and in fact that uh, that was lost. So individually, there were a few surprises. Um, in general. Uh, Somewhat, but not dramatically. Yeah, the basic uh, result is, is what we expected, which was a um, a liberal minority with somebody propping them up. In this case, it turns out it's going to be the NDP. Yeah, actually, as it turned out, uh, the, the Liberals actually picked up one seat in Ontario, which was, I, th- I think, to everybody's surprise, they had seventy-seven at dissolution. I think it's seventy-eight now. And, and the Windsor, mm-hmm. the Windsor uh, situation was a surprise to me too. Uh, Sandra Pupatello, the former provincial cabinet minister in the uh, Liberal government, uh, was running down there, and I thought she would have had a stronger showing. But uh, Brian Mass has been that there. Was for... the, that was the seat that the, the NDP thought they might be in, in threatened by, and in fact, it was the other the other seat also Essex that they yeah. lost. Essex is more competitive, but the the other the the Windsor Tecumseh's the east side of town, and that was uh, anyway that was one of the big surprises for me, I guess. Well, let's talk about Andrew Shear, and uh, and I guess this is inevitable. I mean, every time uh, somebody is on the wrong side of an election like this and uh, doesn't do uh, what people have anticipated he was going to do, there's a lot of anticipation that this was going to be a, a conservative government simply because of all the angst about Justin Trudeau, and a lot of it was more personal than it was on policy. But he's lost. And uh, I know that he addressed, Chair addressed the media yesterday and said he's sticking around, he's not going anywhere. Uh, but if we're to believe some of these rumors, that may not be his call, Bear. Well, there will be a review. I mean, he want, clearly wants to stay. Uh, that's not surprising for politicians. He, uh, by some measures, he certainly did better than, uh, than last time. And uh, it wasn't a total wipeout. It wasn't a conservative majority. Uh, but I do not think that Chair really helped the party much. Uh, some of the circumstances were beyond his control. Uh, part of the problem in Ontario was that was, I think, the, the latent resentment toward Ford, and uh, but Sheer never really separated himself. He certainly didn't allow Ford to be part of the campaign, but he could have said something more specifically to uh, to basically be critical and to suggest that the kind of changes that Ford introduced in terms of education and health cuts in Ontario were not something that he would be doing at all. He could have very much precluded that. He didn't. Um, he's also somebody that just is not quick off the mark in dealing with things. Um, the questions initially, if you remember the early part of the campaign, he was challenged on abortion and um, and gay marriage, which are not issues that I think are pretty much you know set to bed in in, in Canada. We're not we shouldn't be discussing them, but he did not allow himself to quickly state clearly that that that, that was going to happen. Ultimately, it got teased out uh, eventually. Uh, the, the problems with regard to he, he just isn't all that candid about his personal life. The, the comments about the uh, the insurance uh, agent credentials, totally unnecessary, totally unforced error on his part, the same with regard to the, the joint citizenship. Those are things that could have been dealt with very easily long ago, long before. Trudeau made mistakes, too. And that was, that's really the problem with Scheer, is that, in fact, he was unable to exploit Trudeau's mistakes and scandals because of his own. Um, and the fact is, he's not a particularly charismatic person. And I think there's a more general problem. He's also basically a social conservative, which does not resonate with urban Ontario or even suburban Ontario. And those are things that um, I do not think are going to put him in good stead should he be the conservative leader the next time around. I was trying to think of people. I know Peter McKay's name has popped up. Yeah. I was thinking that the kind of person, I'm not sure he's interested in this, but the kind of person that, in fact, 
I think would be very effective as a um, conservative leader to appeal to urban Ontario is Toronto's mayor, John Tory. I think John Tory would be perfect because John Tory, in fact, is much more um, much more moderate and is seen that way. It's not that Ontarians and Torontonians even aren't prepared to vote conservative under certain circumstances. We just saw it provincially. I don't know that they, they knew what they were going to be getting with Ford, but nonetheless, they were prepared to vote conservative. But um, uh, you, uh, social conservatives from the West talk who are prepared to deny climate change or to suggest that nothing should be done about it. Those are just not winning messages. And indeed, I think climate change has already reared its head, is, is, and it's only going to be more significant in elections to come. If the Conservatives are going to want to win future elections, I know they're going to do well in the West, they're going to do well in rural Canada. But if they want to win elections in the future, they've got to crack into not necessarily the city of Toronto or the city of Hamilton, but they're going to have to crack into at least the 905, the suburban belt, which is normally the pivot in both provincial Ontario elections, but also federal elections being swept in Oakville, in Mississauga, in Brampton, in York Region, just about a couple of exceptions. Um, that's something that Conservatives really have to think about, and I'm not sure that uh, that Andrew Scheer is the ticket in the future for the Conservative success. Well, I want to ask you about that, because I've talked to a number of uh, friends of mine in the media who are small-c Conservatives uh, and other people that have consistently voted Conservative in past elections, uh, and and they they felt uncomfortable. It wasn't just with Andrew Scheer, uh, and and they said, "Hey, look, we're taking some heat from some of our colleagues now because uh, we're not so, so strident now with our support for the Conservative Party." And I, I said, "Well, what's the problem?" He says, "I don't think I've changed." This one guy told me, "He says the party's changed. It's gone way too far to the right. Uh, there used to be a, a middle of the road, as you say, kind of a middle right uh, aspect to the Conservative Party, and they seem to have abandoned that uh, for the more well, this, as this guy told me, radical views." And I think that's alienated a lot of voters. Well, that seems to be sheer. I mean, this goes back to the rise of the Reform Party. I don't know that the name progressive being dropped from progressive conservative in itself was the problem, but it may have been symptomatic of something larger. Look, a, a, a party that's geared specifically to rural Alberta and Saskatchewan is this is not going to translate here. Look, the liberals have a problem, too. The liberals did not do well in those provinces, yeah. but the liberals can win elections without Alberta. Just as the Conservatives perhaps can win elections without the city of Toronto, but they cannot win elections without 905, without the suburban ring, those 35, 40 seats, stretch, depending on how you count them, from, the, from Niagara right through to Oshawa. They can't win without that, and as long as they see themselves as a party geared to social conservatism and, and right-wing populism from Alberta, um, I, I think Scheer or anybody else who represents that is going to be very much challenged. Well, and and they were hearkening back, these people I was talking to the other night, uh, hearkening back to the, the glory days of, of obviously, the, the, the Diefenbakers, or Brian Mulroney, uh, who was a centrist, a, a conservative to be sure, but a centrist. As a matter of fact, Brian Mulroney is still regarded by many people as the, as the most environmentally friendly pr- prime minister this country's ever had because of some of the stuff he did uh, vis-a-vis acid rain and things of this nature. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, contrast that, Barry, with uh, with some of the policies on environment that the, the current conservative party is putting forth, and you can understand how people are saying, I don't think that's the party I want to be with now. Look, uh, global warming and climate change are just issues that aren't going away. They're getting more serious. And younger people, but the, also the electorate's changing. The younger people have different values on those questions as on some of the social conservative issues. But demographically, we're changing too. We're no longer such a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant province as we once seemed to be. And the conservatives have to think about that. I, I think parts of Alberta are changing as well. So it's not just, it's not just Ontario. But by and large, where the conservatives are strong... Um, is not in areas that the demographics are, are improving. They're actually getting worse for them. They are going to have to have leaders and policies that are more sensitive to climate change, more sensitive to tolerance of, of minorities toward immigration and toward some of these other social issues. I mean, I, I, abortion technically is really off the table. I think the, the courts have decided that. But they still have people that will pop up and, and uh, make comments that are not helpful, even if the likelihood of conservatives being able to implement them and should they be in government are very unlikely. Um, I do not think Scheer is, is an asset to the Conservative Party anymore, but getting a clone of Scheer isn't going to do it either. I'm not sure Bernier, had he won the leadership, would have been particularly effective either. Uh, what the Conservatives are going to have to do, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an Ontarian, although that would help, but they're going to have to get people that, in fact, can at least speak to urban and suburban Ontario. And frankly, it's not just Toronto, it's, it's Vancouver, it's Winnipeg, Montreal. All of those areas are areas that the Liberals cleaned up. They didn't do very well between Winnipeg and Vancouver, they got nothing. But in those areas, and particularly in urban Ontario, not just Toronto, but cities like Kitchener or Waterloo and Hamilton, the same problem. With that in mind, though, uh, if, if Shear's not their guy, and that's, as you say, there's going to be a review, and that may be the determination, we don't know yet. The, the other names I've heard, though, 
Uh, well, as you mentioned, I mean, Jason Kenny's name is out there, and I'm not sure he'd give up his, his job as a premier to do that, but I, who knows. Uh, Brad Wall, the former premier of uh, Saskatchewan's name, has been mentioned as well. Uh, but that's really more of the same. It seems to me right now that it, it, the Conservative Party, as we see it today, Barry, is very much, as you say, a, a prairie-centric province right now. Uh, and, yep. and if that's where they're going to draw their next leader from, uh, can they expect anything different? Uh, I'm trying to remember the fellow. I think it's O'Toole uh, from just east of Toronto. Yeah, Aaron O'Toole, people, yeah. Yeah, uh, there are people in the caucus who are Ontarians. Frankly, I think they should sort of get out of the mindset of having to elect a Westerner. Not that Westerners can't be, can't be in power as well, but I think the party has to make some sort of gesture, not just symbolically, but in terms of pragmatic policies. I'm not sure he's necessarily the silver bullet either. I, I don't know him that well. But somebody like that who, in fact, is much more likely to be able to broaden the party's base Again, it's not that they have to clean, go to, to sweep Toronto. They don't have to sweep Toronto. They, uh, the Conservatives can win without winning many seats in Toronto at all, the city. But they do have to appeal to the urban and suburban area of Toronto, and most of those seats are in the 905. Not, it's not just in the 905, but it's very much typified by that. Is, uh, we're talking about, obviously, about Andrew Scheer, because that's where the Ipsos poll was, uh, was centered on. Are there other party leaders right now that, uh, that may be on thin ice? I'm thinking specifically maybe of Elizabeth May. Well, I think Elizabeth May has sort of had it anyway. I think she wants out. Um, and indeed, um, look, I, my own view is that the Green Party effectively is hurting the, the Canadian left by basically splitting the vote. Yes, they want a seat in Fredericton, and she's very proud of the fact that it's the first party to have two-thirds female representation because they only have three people. Um, I, I think that indeed for people that are on the political left should really con- reconsider as to whether the Greens add much as a, a choice to the NDP and the Liberals, plus in the Quebec, the, the Bloc that are already supporting environmental policies. So uh, my own sense is that the Green Party is not necessarily something that enhances the Canadian left in general, at least the, the agenda of the Canadian left, and they didn't do particularly well in this campaign. Yes, I, I, I don't think that uh, Elizabeth May is going to be there in the future. I don't know enough about internal Green Party politics to know who might replace her. I don't think the party is going away. I just don't think that the party adds that much to the choices that are available to Canadians, and I think it splits the vote of the left. Uh, in terms of the others, um, I, I don't know if you're interested. I, I think Singh's going to be around. Um, again, the irony of Singh and the irony of our political system. We see a, a party who that lost close to half its seats from the last election, um, three-quarters of its seats from two elections ago when Jack Layton was leader, and in fact actually has more power and influence in Parliament now than they had in either of those times. When Layton had 103 seats, he had no real power in a in a conservative majority government um, or influencing now because of the minority situation, which isn't so much as a result of Singh's doing so much as the fact that the bloc denied a lot of liberal seats in Quebec. The NDP is going to be a player in this next parliament. They're going to have an influence on policy in the way they happened for a long time. And um, Singh's not going anywhere. Uh, well, yeah, he's still on, I'm not going to say a honeymoon period necessarily, but he got a real boost. I guess it just seems, though, in, in recent years, though, Barry, that the, 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 the future of the NDP seems very much tied to what happens in Quebec, and that's really, really, they got decimated. Uh, was it because people had turned off the NDP, or was it just because the, the bloc all of a sudden became a viable alternative? Well, yeah, both. Um, and the fact that Singh is a visible minority who wears a turban, I think that, that counts much more negatively in Quebec than it does elsewhere. And that's why they've had their, their secular legislation, the Bill 21. Uh, look, the, the NDP was in trouble in Quebec even before Singh became leader. Um, while one would like to think if the NDP was ever going to be a, a serious alternative in terms of national government, winning Quebec as they did in, in uh, 2011 was critical. But frankly, the NDP is kind of back to where they were in the old days, which is that they're not a Quebec party. They have the one member, Bolleris, from, uh, from Rosemont. They may be competitive in the odd other seat. Uh, but the NDP is probably going to be perennially a third party or right now even a fourth party. Um, and that, that they still have a role in the, the our political choices as a result of that. I'm not sure the Greens are, are all that valuable to have three or even four or five seats, uh, and, but splitting the vote and denying other left-wing parties, the Liberals and the NDP, seats elsewhere. If they weren't on the ballot, the NDP would have had probably more than the three seats they represented. Anyway, I, I don't want to dwell on that. I don't think the Greens are, are, are going anywhere. The NDP is... Um, the NDP is going to be around. They're going to be around as a third party, not a party that's probably a likely alternative to actually form a government. But in minority government times, as we have now, they can have influence and they will have influence. And we're going to see hopefully some movement toward pharmacare. That's going to take a while because you have to get provincial buy-in arranged with that, too. Hopefully something with regard to interest rates for, uh, for you know, post-secondary students making loans. 
um, maybe something with regard to more housing, because both the liberals and the conservative and the NDP are pledged to that. So there will be some policies. Those are examples where I think the NDP will have some influence encouraging the liberal government to do things that they've already said they were going to do anyway. I got to throw one more name at you, and and that's Justin Trudeau. I, I was talking to a liberal insider who, who spoke to me on the condition of anonymity uh, for obvious reasons, who says uh, this may well be the last election Justin Trudeau leads the liberals in. He's damaged goods. That was the phrase he used. Uh, and yeah, okay, we, we you know we won by with a minority government, but they're questioning his future. Is there any validity to that? I agree with that. Um, at a time when I was sort of thinking they were going to come close to 15, 20 seats less than they had now, um, that uh, when they were going to be in the high 130s or thereabouts, around 140 seats, I thought that uh, yeah, Trudeau's time is probably finished. I don't think he will ever be able to have the appeal that he had um, four years ago. And I think there are obvious alternatives. Christopher Freeland is the name that quickly comes to mind. But I think that'll determine. I mean, again, he's going to be around for a while. Uh, we're really probably going to have at least a couple of years of minority government, maybe more, because of the fact that none of the opposition parties want an election. The NDP's broke. They had to mortgage their, their building in Ottawa in order to fund the campaign. They aren't getting money. Uh, the Bloc Québécois on a high. They haven't done this well in forever. Um, the Conservatives perhaps might like an election, but they aren't in a position to be able to force it. So I think Trudeau will be around. Depending upon the poll, his polling standing in a year and a half, two years, he may well decide that discretion is the better part of valor and offer his resignation before he's actually pushed. So I think there's a good chance he may not be around next time. But I can't say that based on the polls of today, but rather what public opinion looks like in a year and a half or so. Well, and his behavior as well. I mean, a lot of the concerns with, with Trudeau obviously were you know, self-inflicted wounds, and you know, we don't know if he's over that yet or not. I guess time will tell. He, look, he's not, a, he's not authentic. Look, you know, again, and I, frankly, I've always thought he was a lightweight, even back in the days when he was, he was more popular than he is now. He is not a particular, he's not the intellectual force his father was. Um, but nonetheless, he appeals to people. He's a celebrity, he's a notable, and people like that, and there was uh, an appearance of charisma, certainly in the early days. Uh, that said, I don't think he's going away anytime soon, but um, I think it depends on how popular he is in the next couple of years as to whether or not he may be around for the next election. I'm not saying with certainty that it's going to happen, but the liberals do have alternatives. And I think Krista Freeland with somebody who has not made mistakes that I know of, and I think she would make a very credible alternative. There perhaps are others in the party as well. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier. As always, Barry, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. Good, good talking to you. Bye-bye. I'll take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here for the hour. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having us on again. Uh, your uh, police service has been very busy. There have been a number of incidents I wanted to talk about. And one most recently, of course, was a, a home invasion. And uh, that's a, a, a phrase that always scares the daylights out of people. thinking, gee, that could happen to us. Uh, I know that you can't release details yet. This is an ongoing investigation. But my understanding is there's an arrest been made already? On the home invasion? I don't have an update on that oh, okay. one. Uh, I do know as a general principle, uh, when we've done the kind of the retrospective analysis, they're not generally arbitrary. Uh, there are generally tied into people who know each other. There may be uh, people doing that to either get uh, drugs, money, or jewelry, or firearms. Uh, so it's, uh, I think from a public perspective, it's not like, oh, your door will be kicked in and somebody's coming in to do a home invasion in your house. Now, what can happen, because our criminals get their addresses wrong sometimes, is they get the wrong address. But uh, generally speaking, they're, they're targeted for the most. So these are bad guys going after bad guys. Well, I don't want to say that about the victims, but what I'll say is people who may be involved in the criminal underworld uh, or criminal transactions, and that's why they have drugs, money, or guns, and then uh, they are the target, but not always. Well, I, yeah, I was talking to one of the, actually it was last year at the retirees dinner, I was talking yes. to one of the detectives that was retiring, and he said that, you know, because we got into this whole thing about home invasions, and, and he said, look, at if, if you're a bad guy and you know that so-and-so is involved in narcotics, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be a lot of money in that house. Right, and I mean at any know, given time. Right, and I mean with the uh, I'll, I'll talk about you know the criminal world as well. Well, they don't play by the rules, and uh, you know if I can take your drugs and your money, uh, then I'm up. And I mean that's the substance of a lot of popular culture. Uh, you know they got the series now Queen of the South on, and that's fundamentally the premise is going to rip you off for your drugs and your money. And then firearms, you know, they're generally present with drugs. You've got that component. And obviously, from a public safety perspective, that's where it's an issue for us. If you're going to get into the gunplay in a house, will the round go through the house and out the window into somebody else's house? So, you know, that's why we actively investigate these things. Uh, there have been some violent incidents, too, which are ongoing investigations. Any updates on those in the last couple of days? Uh, which one specifically? Are, well, there's, there's a couple of them going on. Stabbing, uh, one yeah. stabbing incident yep. specifically that I know a lot of people were concerned about. Yep. 
Yeah, so that was up on the West Mountain, and yes, actively investigated. Again, you know, do the people know each other? Is there more to the story? You've got the homicide that's happened at uh, the boulevards. Uh, that's being actively investigated. We've got the really egregious, and anytime we get into youth issues, you have the stabbing of a, a young boy uh, in front of his mother. I can't think of anything that's more horrendous. And uh, obviously all the implications to that. They're all being actively investigated by homicide, so yeah. Uh, that dovetails into bullying. Yep. And we talked about that significantly. And, and there's there's the brazen bullying, such as seems to be the case in that particular scenario, sadly. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk to you about, though, too, is, is online bullying. Uh, and I know that that's a, a gray area for an awful lot of people because they don't quite get it. I think a lot of people may be actually guilty of doing it and not even know that it's it's bullying. Uh, but it's it's spreading gossip. It's a number of different ways we can do this. At what point do police get involved in that? Is there a line that has to be crossed before they say, hey, I think that's criminal activity? Well, then you've just pinpointed it's when it's criminal activity. You know, gossip and those type of things is not. We've done education, as you know, for years, and particularly on the online bullying uh, with the school system through our school liaison officers about the impact of that. And, you know, I meet with uh, uh, the youth committee on a regular basis. It's youth advisory committee to me. Um, so the mental health aspects are starting to be pronounced. The impact of bullying. Uh, and, you know, we all, I, I, I just give it as a frame of reference. We all attended high school. So think about the groups. I mean, again, they do it in the common culture about, uh, you know, uh, the impact of that at school between, really it's four years, but four pretty important years. It's usually in your adolescence. And then the conduct of certain people, the exclusion, uh, the groups, who's in, who's out. Uh, it's not kind of new, but what we're recognizing the impact of that and what I'm actually um, impressed by is the level of knowledge in our youth about the mental health issues, the other things that go into that uh, in terms of risk factors, and the support that they're providing to the other students. Now, it's obviously not a question for me. It's really uh, where it happens in the school place, but it can happen outside. To your point, where it enters the criminal realm, we will get involved. Where it's not, and we don't want to criminalize behavior um, that could be better handled at other venues in a, at a lower level through a consistent application, through interventions. Because if you turn to the police every time and we can't arrest because there's no criminal offense, then it's viewed as uh, not being effective. And we also know with use, um, you better do that proactive preventative stuff at the appropriate level. How do you go, uh, go through an, an investigation like this, though? Uh, we know that anonymity is, well, there's uh, alleged anonymity anyway on, on the Internet, and uh, not oftentimes the person who you think you're communicating with, you're not communicating with. It could be somebody totally different. How do you, how do you wade through that as, in an investigative way? Well, and again, I don't know that it requires a criminal investigation each time. What I do think is when you're talking about school-based situations and kids who uh, are together is, generally speaking, the kids know who's up to what. Um, and, you know, some of it may be delivered through online, but some of it's delivered elsewhere. It's that kind of disentanglement that has to happen uh, between the teachers, the kids themselves, whether it's mediation or getting together uh, and the interventions. Again, if we're required, and we have been, we'll get involved, particularly where there's threats or specific criminal conduct. But if, if you used about online threats in a situation like that, if, if bodily harm is, is being threatened by somebody, yep. can you get involved in that, obviously. Uh, and depending on um, who contacts us or not, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's also another piece, right? If we, we don't know, we, we can't investigate. Um, and specific bodily threat and those type of things. And then you've got to look at dispositions. We've just made an arrest uh, for an online threat. Uh, we have taken those seriously through the course of time. If you recall, there was one that went out to multiple universities, and we tracked it through a kid that was in Stratford, Ontario, actually, um, you know, where you, you visit them and now he's in his basement on his computer and we're at the door, you know, knocking on the door. Um, it's the disruption that that causes, particularly where you've got threats of bombs or people coming in with guns. So we take those seriously. The schools, whether they're university or otherwise, have to take um, and make a decision about the, the actual implication of those threats. You know, but again, you've got people who are causing mischief who might phone in repeatedly, and really all they're trying to do is disrupt the school day. So you've got to make an informed decision on those, and it's, um, you know, what has happened in the specific threat? What do they know in terms of the schools? If it's external, what does that mean? Is it a multiple spoof out to multiple universities and or schools? 
there's a lot to do when we get those threats. So we do actively investigate them, and we will charge. Uh, a lot of uh, emails and uh, tweets, and we're going to get to those in a couple of seconds. B. Kelly at 900CHML.com on email and on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. Of course, the phone number is 905-645-3221 and start 9900. Uh, one quick one here says, uh, I'm curious here, is there a plan to deal with e-bikes on Hamilton streets? Uh, he goes on to say, I recently came close to uh, a collision with one that was uh, going at least 45 kilometers an hour at Wellington and King Street. Gray day, there were no lights, and this guy was just uh, weaving in and out of, of lanes. Um, that's that's interesting. I, I've seen that very scenario oftentimes right now. What's what's the policy? What's the rule? Well, elec- electric bikes are not a motor vehicle because, of course, they're not powered by a gas engine, but they do have to follow the requirements of the Highway Traffic Act, just as uh, muscular-driven bicycles do as well. And you can think about it downbound on accesses. Some of those bikes can be going, you know, I'll go with uh, miles per hour, you know, fit, well, I'll go with K, 50 to yeah. 60 kilometers per hour. So you're required to do all the things that a normal motor or a vehicle is on the highways, on a motor vehicle, but a vehicle is, and you have to follow the laws. And whether it's uh, proper lighting or whether it's uh, having the horn, and I know some people think when we stop and issue tickets for those, oh, you're being mean-spirited, I've got this counterpoint from the rest of the public saying, well, no, you have an obligation to do all those things, and when you don't, you should be held accountable. Where are they allowed to, to ride these things? Because that's one, another point of contention, I think, with a lot, a lot of people. Uh, are they supposed to stay in bike lanes? Are they? Uh, are, uh, can they go into traffic, lanes of traffic? What, what's, what's the responsibility here? Well, they can go into traffic, but if you've got, and here's a ticket I've laid occasionally, unnecessary slow driving, if you've got a 50K limit and they're impeding the traffic, then uh, they need to move over either to the far right or uh, if you've got a bike lane provided, obviously you can go into the bike lane. Uh, but again, you've got to look at the risk and the traffic flow within that bike lane. If you're doing 40K um, and others are not, then you've got a problem. You should probably blend with the traffic. So there's no easy answer to that one. It depends on the capabilities of uh, the equipment you've got and what the circumstances are relative to traffic flow. We get a multitude of these things uh, in the wintertime uh, when we are doing the town halls about scooters, which is uh, the cousin of, I guess, these things. Uh, and again, uh, the common concern seems to be scooters on the roads. Uh, you know, they're, they're not licensed vehicles. They're not supposed to be on the road, are they? Well, that depends, again, because uh, you've got to cross at certain intersections. Then you're on the traveled portion of the road. Um, we get complaints about both bicycles and scooters on the sidewalk. And then they say, well, where are they supposed to drive? And to your point in the winter, if you don't have a bike lane that's clear, and now you've got snow piled up and the scooter is in the curb lane going, you know, I don't know, eight or nine kilometers per hour, that's an issue too. So no real easy solutions to that one. But what I would say, your guiding principle has to do what is safe for both the scooter driver and what is safe for traffic and what's realistic in terms of uh, what can that driver expect on the roadway. But if I go out today and and I'm driving down Main Street and there's a, a scooter going on the road, I mean, the, the weather's nice. You know, it's, there's no snow drifts or anything like Correct. that. Do they belong on the road? They can travel on the road, but again, it's a safety issue, right? Yeah. It's it's much like a bicycle. You can travel on the road, uh, but it's where are you? Are, like, are you in the middle lane of Main Street? Probably not a good idea. One, you don't have the speed. Two, the visibility. So you've got to make a decision as that scooter driver. And obviously, usually with scooters, uh, there's uh, some kind of physical limitation for the operator. So the operator is saying, well, you know, where do you want me? Uh, scooters can go on the sidewalk, but again, it's relative to the traffic flow. Bicycles is a little different because you're going faster, but scooters should be on the sidewalk under those circumstances. Well, I, I, I want to say it should just be a common sense scenario, but, Thank often, you. but oftentimes it's not. <laughs> no, that's, I get I, it. that's why we get emails about this all the time, I, I suppose. Uh, very quickly, I may get one call in. I want to go to break in a couple of seconds, and we got a lot of stuff we want to cover here today. Tony, you're first up on this. Thanks for joining us on the program today, Tony. All right, Bill. Uh, the, my question and points are what, what can the uh, police department or how they can reinforce the uh, uh, laws about uh, safe, safe cars? I don't know how many times I've gone down the street and I've stopped people and, and brought it to their attention. Uh, no brake lights. Uh, all they got is the out light in the, in the back window. No brake lights or uh, one brake light, uh, one headlight. Uh, and uh, they drive their car with the daylight uh, lights on, 
but uh, they forget at dusk uh, to turn their lights on, and, and all you see is a black blob going down the, down the street that you're following, and you, you can only see them in a silhouette of the lights of the, uh, of the car, other cars that are coming towards you. What can they do to uh, bring it to their attention? All right, Tony, I'm going to let you go and let you listen to that uh, on the radio. I'll get the chief to answer that just before we go to break. Good call, though, because I see a lot of that, too. Go ahead, chief. Yeah, and thanks, Tony, for the question. Haven't been in traffic. And uh, generally speaking, my approach was uh, stop the vehicle, let them know, particularly for uh, lights out at the back or lights not on in the front. And that is a, a hazard, particularly at night. And in my experience, what happened was if you give a person a warning and you give them time to comply, um, generally speaking, with the flow of traffic, you'll find them again. And then usually a second time, then I'll issue a ticket. Uh, our officers have that discretion either to proceed with a ticket or not. What we want, obviously, is compliance with the safety issue. So short answer is you stop the car, you advise the person, you either issue an offense notice or you give them a warning and get compliance. Or you can get a late model car, and that does it automatically. So you don't have to <laughs> <laughs> get one of the lights that goes on and say, hey, fix this. Because I, I always, always, always in the old days, remember you had to pull the yep. thing out to you put your lights on? Yep. Yeah, no, I don't have to do that anymore, thank God, because I always tended to forget. Well, of course, at night you don't see anything, so you have to turn the lights on anyway. You would like to think because of the daytime driving lights, and you'll see that quite often where the front headlights are on, but the rear tail lights are not because the person is relying on their daytime driving lights and thinks they have full capacity, which they don't. Is this not a rule in Ontario right now that you need daytime driving lights? They yes. have to be on? Yeah, it's automatic. Because I see a lot of cars don't do it. No, they're, they're required to, and they're built to be on, turn on automatically in the later model cars, and I think they started that in the early 80s yeah. in reserves. Um, I don't have the exact date. But you can override that, I guess, because I see a lot of people driving without them. And motorcycles have to, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Anything, because obviously you want to be able to see those. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doug, you're on the Bill Kelly Show. Go ahead, Doug, for the chief. Yes, sir. Um I'm employed uh, in the city of Hamilton, and I'm on the road all day on the mountain. And my issue is the trucks that are running the link in the fast lane, not doing the speed limit. I mean, it's backing up the traffic all day, every day. And is there is there any law for them that they that they have to use the right lane? I know it's not a 400 series highway, but it just seems that that's a major problem on the link. Doug, great call. I'll let you go, and I'll get the chief to answer it on the air. Thanks so much for the call today. So, and I was just going to ask a clarifying question, but uh, I think it's more an unnecessary slow driving you're talking about in the passing lane uh, versus going too fast. Because as you know, we're uh, applying uh, through the city uh, special duties on the Red Hill for that enforcement. We've seen actually a reduction in two things. One, the overall speed, because that's being measured through the traffic safety initiatives uh, uh, through the city of Hamilton, uh, but also uh, the number of accidents and fatalities. And I'm knocking on wood here because uh, I don't want any of those. So the unnecessary slow driving, usually you have to see that and it has to be fairly pronounced to do that. And it depends again on the ability of the truck. And I, I get where he's going in terms of moving over to the right-hand lane or uh, with the congestion, you know, as the operator, because I know driving that with all the turnoff lanes and the entrance of vehicles onto uh, where you've got speed issues, sometimes it might be safer for the truck driver to move to the left in the overall capacity. So I don't really have a great answer for you other than, you know, it's unnecessary slow driving. Let's say they're going 50K, that's an issue. Okay, but to his point... Um is the left lane a traffic lane or is that a passing lane? That was uh, along the books years back where you have to stay to the right curve lane unless passing, but it's not the case. Uh, so really, it's back to your earlier comment, Bill, common sense. Yeah. And uh, that's why I say there's a lot of dynamics when you're going in the link and with the access and egress, with all um, the uh, cutoffs, that you got to look at the total picture of what is best for everybody. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chiefs Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us. As was, uh, happens on the show from time to time, though, uh, when you're in here, Chief, uh, breaking news. Uh, we just, as you sat down here today, find out that uh, this ongoing investigation about the incident at Mohawk College some weeks ago, uh, arrests have been made. 
Yeah, so this was from Sunday the 29th of September uh, up at Mohawk College with the uh, People Party of Canada and Maxime Bernier. Uh, so as you know, we had a number of incidents that day. We did follow up and there's been three arrests, uh, one where the party had to get arrested, two where they turned themselves in. Uh, so the first is a male from Toronto who's 27. The second is a 33-year-old male from Toronto. And the third is a 30-year-old male from Hamilton. So the first charges are uh, for uh, Allah al-Sufi, intimidation times two, disguised with intent times two. And I know that's been an issue in terms of people wearing masks. And of course, when they do commit a criminal offense, then uh, those criminal charges apply and cause disturbance. The second uh, charges are Kevin Metcalf, 33, uh, again from Toronto, obstruct police. And the third is a Maxa Milano Herrera, 30 years from Hamilton, intimidation, assault level one. Uh, also the investigators and it's uh, uh, Constable, Detective Constable James Durka, and also our Detective Sergeant Marco Del Conte, you can phone either one of them. We're still looking to identify uh, a male victim who was assaulted by a male suspect while videotaping the event on a cell phone. And the second was a female victim who was assaulted when a male suspect knocked her hat from her head, which was later returned by police. So those were captured on video surveillance and the suspects have been identified. But uh, as you know, we generally need a victim to proceed with charges. Uh, so if those people uh, want to come forward, uh, we're certainly interested in speaking to those victims. So there could be more charges then, depending on what happens and who calls or doesn't call. Correct. And the investigations are still continuing relative to a couple of other offenders. And I know the detectives are in the work in terms of either locating them or uh, making contact with them or issuing warrants. So these are the three charges that uh, were released today, and there may be more coming out. And, and again, you can call uh, police anytime if you didn't get the names of those detectives. Yeah, and by I'll, all means. I'll give the number. Uh, I know it's on the media release, but it's Detective Constable James Durka, and the number is 905-546-8966. And the detective sergeant overseeing these investigations is Marco Del Conte, and he is available at 905-546-3851. And just a reminder again that you can still apply, uh, make a phone call to Crime Stoppers uh, should, you not, should you want to remain anonymous and have information for us. Uh, and they don't, there's no call display in Crime Stoppers. That's just Correct. You, so you can maintain your anonymity. Correct. All right. Uh, good news there. Uh, ongoing investigation. A uh, number of other things I wanted to ask you about, and, and especially now we're a couple of days out from uh, the federal election. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Liberals, of course, were uh, reelected, of course, in a minority situation. Anyway, one of the planks that they talked about, that the Prime Minister talked about, uh, was increased gun control. Now, I know you don't get involved in the legislative aspect, but as a member of the Ontario Chiefs of Police, yep. you do take a stand on issues like yep. this. What What is the uh, the association stand on, on the flow of guns into this country and the use of guns? Well, obviously it's a huge concern, and we know that, uh, I've talked about this before in our program, we know that a lot of them flow from uh, certain states, uh, Ohio being one of them, and New York State is not as prevalent, but down in some of the other states. So, uh, and you know the prevalence and availability. Just go to one of their flea markets. Uh, you know, we have automatic weapons and handguns and all the rest. It's actually, for Canadians, it's a culture shock when you see that the prevalence and how available they are. Uh, relative to the restrictions and regulations, and I know I may differ from some of the other people in this, uh, to enact a bylaw to do so, there are restrictions, criminal restrictions, uh, around both uh, handguns, which are restricted weapons, prohibited weapons, which are usually automatic weapons. Um, so the, the legislation is quite tight there, uh, but we do know that the prevalence and the distribution of, of those type of weapons is increasing. And of course, uh, you know, I, I look back to my career when I started, if you got a handgun in a car, it was a big deal. Uh, today, um, not so much, which is disturbing for all of us. So from an OACP perspective, we're looking at effective interventions. And what we look at is the investigations, really enforcement around uh, guns and gangs, and those type of people who are involved with the offenses that we're really trying to target versus doing it through legislative means, which we view in many cases, the legislation is there. It's a matter of getting the people with the handguns. And then last piece is for disposition by the courts. Uh, we do take it quite seriously. Um, I realize that there's judicial independence, but we would like to see uh, more severe sentences for these things. Uh, this is a, a hot debate, and it's not the first time any federal government has tried to do something like this. And invariably, there is a pushback. And again, that's getting into the politics of it. And, uh, there, there's issues about civil rights, and we, we yep. get that, and Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is also brought into this. But 
consistently, though, the, both the Canadian and Ontario associations have been had a pretty strong stand on this and, and said, look, it, there is evidence that suggests, uh, that from what I know anyway, that gun control can be effective. Obviously, that gives you another tool. Uh, what do you know that some of the people in the public apparently don't know? Uh, I think just based on the topic, what you get, and, and you just talked about it, you have a pushback from those who are responsible gun owners who do take all the necessary steps to transport safely, to lock up effectively, to do the requirements within the home, which is separate the ammo from the weapon and all the requirements that are in legislation. And I do know they get quite upset because they say, look, I, I'm a responsible gun owner and I'm not making my gun out available. I don't leave it out in my home, uh, whether it's children getting access or criminals getting access. So you've got that particular standpoint. Then you've got, and particularly out west in the western provinces, you've got people on farms and other large uh, places where they have to use firearms for either pest control or otherwise. Uh, it could be wolves, it could be, you know, and th- there's all kinds of requirements around that too. I don't want to get into that. But you've got the pressures from those who are using them responsibly versus, and our stresses, where you've got criminals who are using them, particularly in an urban setting, particularly handguns uh, or modified weapons like a sawed-off shotgun, that is the, the crux of where we want to target our enforcement to get the guns off the street. Because the pushback is always, well, the, the, the people that are breaking the law aren't going to abide by that anyway. But I know that there is a percentage, and I'm not sure off the top of my head what it is, of guns on the street that are actually stolen from legitimate gun owners. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a little more rare because if you've... If you complied with the legislation, locked them up as you should with a gun safe, if you've stored them properly, it's not easy. Where we run into issues is people who aren't as familiar with it or have inherited guns, and that's why we have a gun amnesty, is, uh, you know, if you have firearms, you really don't know what, you know, the requirements are, give us a call. We'll come and pick them up. Uh, we will ensure that they're, you know, traced in case it were a crime gun. We're not given an exemption for that. Uh, but again, if you're turning them into us, uh, I think the amnesty, which is, we don't do it as a program. We emphasize it occasionally, but it's always there. So if you've got guns, uh, particularly handguns and or, you know, other weapons where your uncle kept it from World War II, uh, give us a call. We'll come and pick up the weapons for you. Uh, but generally speaking, what I hear from the, the other, uh, you know, uh, responsible gun owners says, no, I'm complying with the legislation. It's not that easy to steal. And yes, I have a proper gun safe and it is bolted to the wall. All those other things are not that easy to steal that way. Anyway, it's uh, going to be a, co- a topic of debate, I'm sure, once uh, Parliament gets back to work in a couple of days or weeks or whatever it's going to be. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is here with the Chief's Town Hall. Uh, back to your phone calls. Uh, David, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, and thanks, Chief, for the great work you do in our city. Thank you, Dave. My question is about tinted windows. Years ago, I got a brand new, cute little car, and that didn't have air conditioning. I wanted to have air conditioning, and it was suggested I get tinted windows. I did that. There were sort of regulations how dark it could be here and there. I get bothered today because I mean, every car has air conditioning and all that. Um, with the tinted windows, I'm at at intersections, particularly let's say there's no traffic lights. And you, I cannot tell who's in the car. Like, are they looking at me? Are they looking? Where are they looking? I have no idea who is sitting in that front seat because the front tinted windows are very dark. I'm just curious what the position is on that. So you've raised a very good question that's had a lot of debate, both by the courts, and generally speaking, this happens in provincial offenses court with justice of the peace. There was a phase in time where they had some kind of measurement to say what the distribution of light was um, through uh, the window. Then we got into debates about, and you're right on the money, which is, can you see the occupant? Because if I'm doing an investigation relative to uh, suspended driving or otherwise, and I can't even see what's going on inside the car, drivers could switch, which has been known to happen. I've talked about that in the show. But there's a whole safety issue around what is a driver doing? Because if I walk up to the vehicle and I can't even see theoretically, we just talk about guns and gangs, then I get somebody pointing a firearm at me and I can't even see it. So there's a safety issue. So this is a debate that's still live before the courts in terms of what the requirements are. Um, and then you've got the lighting conditions, uh, which is, is it bright outside? Is it dull yeah. outside? Is it yeah. bright inside? Is it dull inside? Uh, so the requirement, as I understand it in the law, is if I can't see what's going on there, and I described that 
you know, appropriately. Then I've got an issue that the tint is too heavy. Uh, I just mean, you know, from a, to your point, common sense, and we keep coming back to that as a, as a kind of a standard, um, you should be able to see what's going on inside there. And I realize you want to keep the sun out and, you know, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. But if I can't see, that's a problem for both of us. Yes, yes, I've been very troubled by it, and you know, it just was highlighted because years ago, I had I was aware that it was certain levels of darkness, and then today, now, like I'm retired, but I mean, I have problems at the intersections. Like I cannot see what's in that car. Is it a teddy bear? What what is it? Like like you can you have no idea whatsoever, and it just bothers me, especially at a, a an intersection without traffic lights. What what are they doing? Do they see me? Are they going to go? Should I go? You know. And you raise a really good point, which is we recommend, uh, you know, when you pull up to an intersection, uh, rather than look at the vehicle, look at the driver to see what the driver does. Does the driver see you? Yes. And as you stated, you can't see that. Then how do you make eye contact to know what the other driver is going to do or motion them ahead or don't or whatever uh, the requirements are? So it was prevalent really about 10, 15 years ago. It was a big, big issue. Everybody seemed to be tinting them heavily. I think most of the manufacturers have complied with kind of a, a standard where you can see, but the yes, private tinting so. is different issue and yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried it it is not easy to get it without any bubbles so yeah. uh, but <laughs> to your yeah. point standard for me is can you see inside the vehicle to identify who's driving and their safety issues for our members so are there uh, firms that are installing a tinting that really isn't legal then right now is that is that what I'm facing with once in a while? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect that probably what happens in the transaction is the supplier says, well, we don't usually recommend this because can't see it all. Uh, but I couldn't really answer that question. I've been yeah. out of touch with that area for some time. Great call. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Thank you. Take You're care. welcome. Thank you. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. I wanted to get into uh, uh, the edibles too, because that this, it's legal now. If you can find it, I guess. Bill, you want to get in the edibles? Well, I'm, in a manner of speaking. Phrase of speech, I got it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you we, can, you know, it's legal. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm, <laughs> not for me. Thanks very much. But uh, anyway, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this and how this is changing enforcement. I mean, yeah. we had problems with storefront locations, yeah. and, and you've pretty much wiped that out now. That's gone. Uh, but there's a concern now about this. And, and notwithstanding the fact that I know one of the government's stated purposes in legalization uh, was to try to, to mitigate the impact of the black market, it's still out there. Okay, so number of questions rolled up in there, but uh, around the edibles... We're still looking at the metaphors now <laughs> rolled up in there? Okay, go <laughs> ahead. Hey, that's good. Uh, no, I hadn't caught that one, but that's good. Uh, so where we are right now is with, uh, you know, Parliament being dissolved, you've had the election, the Liberals are back. Uh, we are looking from the federal government, having that state our position through the OACP, our Ontario Association Chiefs of Police, is it's not particularly clear what the requirements are. I do know that it's now legal, but the question is, you still have to obtain those edibles from a government-approved store. They won't be ready for distribution, as I understand it, probably the, the early part of next year. That's what we've heard, yeah. So that's not happening yet. From an enforcement perspective, you obviously it becomes extremely difficult uh, in terms of uh, what is the food, what is the concentration of THC, what's going to be allowed, is it CBD, is it THC, of course the active ingredient is uh, tetrahydrocarbonyl, I believe, if I get it right, THC. Uh, CBDs don't have the THC in it. Um, and then what are the percentages they're going to allow? And I know I've got a little graph that shows me that, but the problem is how do I determine that at the roadside? Um, so we're, we're pretty, like it's complex enough with dried cannabis, wet cannabis, plants, um, oils, all the rest, and what percentage you can have of that by weight. Um, and our members have been trained on that, but the um, the edibles, it's a whole other dimension. And generally speaking, if you've included them in your edibles, um, then probably it is going to be uh, an illegitimate source at that point because they're not available from the government stores yet. So we're looking to the feds uh, to regulate that through uh, their acts and through the Ministry of Health. Again, I don't want to get into, uh, you know, regulating consumables and things that are approved in law. It, it is the um, uh, illegitimate or the illegal products that we're interested in. Generally speaking, what I'm finding for the enforcement on the street 
is those who are carrying THC above the legal limit, you know, if you've got 60 grams instead of 30, probably they're also got other drugs, whether it's methamphetamines or other drugs. I'm just seeding from, you know, what I have seen in terms of the enforcement end of it. And, and it's not really the, you know, I've got 28 grams of cannabis and it's not questionable. What's happening is, and I'm not saying this for all the consumers, let me be clear on that, is uh, the arrests that we're making also involve other drugs. Okay, uh, that's uh, I, I got a couple of minutes left here. I'm going to try to squeeze a few more calls in if I could. Adam, thanks for holding on. Go ahead for the chief. Hi guys, uh, my name's Adam. I live in the uh, Kirkendale neighborhood off Lock Street, mm-hmm. and uh, I just had a question regarding. Uh, I've been there for 38 years, and it seems the last uh, three or four years we've had an increase in uh, property thefts from our alleyways, uh, car break-ins, people's sheds getting broken into. Yep. And I was just wondering if uh, chief, if you've got a plan uh, moving forward. Uh, to deal with this, uh, maybe you know we've been reporting it. Uh, if there's an increase in crime in our neighborhood, and what we can do to uh, to uh, uh, resolve this. Yeah, so this has been raised a couple of times, and I know for the Kirkendale uh, neighborhood in general, and this goes back to actually the incident on Log Street where you had the, uh, the uh, breaking of the windows. Uh, I was with the beat crime manager who normally looks at those statistics locally, mm-hmm. and we had not seen an increase. However, what we are seeing is, uh, to your point about thefts from cars, uh, mm-hmm. when we apply pressure on things like B&Es and robberies, Generally speaking, what happens is people will go for those more uh, easy crimes of opportunity where they will enter a open car, go in and rummage around for what's available. We've done, um, and this is not a reflection on Kirkendale, this is a broader issue, is we've done education on, you know, make sure you lock your doors, don't have things like, and you'd be surprised at the number of people have wallets in plain view, purses in plain view, laptops, phones, all those things that are easily stolen and sometimes in open cars. So uh, I'm looking at it from a crime prevention perspective to give the answer to your specific uh, with an analysis over, say, a one or two year period. I would recommend you contact the beat crime manager, who you may be aware of already, mm-hmm. in the Kirkendale neighborhood. I know that Amanda Gill was doing that job for a long time. We hadn't seen specific increases in that area, but we are seeing more reporting. And I do know that we had some correspondence through to the board and we made contact between, uh, it was Mr. Frankel at the time because he was on public record and uh, we did follow up with him. So I would recommend you speak to that uh, crime manager and they'll be able to give you the specifics. But again, we do appreciate the increased reporting. In some cases, we've made arrests where the person could be responsible for 50 or 60 different yeah, uh, thefts from do you see a connection between uh, the increasing in some of the transient people we have that live uh, you know, under the uh, highway bridge there at Dunder and King? Like, you know, we notice a lot of these, uh, you know, individuals in the area and they're, they're roaming the alleyways at night. And uh, it just seems like, like I said, I've been there for 38 years. In the last five years, it just seems like, I don't know if we're reporting it more, but it seems like all my neighbors, you know, uh, lots of people on social media reporting that they have, they're getting their bikes stolen, their garages broken into, their sheds broken into, and it seems like it's just an increasing problem. Well, it may or may not be related to that, uh, but again, we've got to make the arrest to find out, and when we get disclosures from the people, when we debrief them, to say, yes, I did commit that theft, we look for those clearances. Again, for that specific information, I'd refer you to the beat crime manager, but I think, I guess where I'm going at uh, is, uh, you know, where there's crime prevention te- techniques you can do or target harden, we would recommend those in light of all the things that you've stated. All right, we got to run. Uh, okay, great call. Thanks so thanks. much, Adam, for the call. Uh, rule one there, and again, I know you've mentioned this many times on the program, lock your doors. Lock your car, <laughs> lock your door. Uh, uh, most obvious thing. I know so many people that don't. And, you know, there are people that are looking for those opportunities. You know, to go and grab a stereo or a laptop or something. I don't know who uses stereos anymore. But anyway, uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much for this. Great uh, show today. Appreciate uh, it. Any information, any people, they can call Crime Stoppers if they have any information about these ongoing yep. investigations yep. or, of course, Central Station and, uh, and get in touch with an officer. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.